Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Hey, everybody. Come on in. Get comfortable, just relax. <laughs> Everybody's comfortable? Yeah. Good, good. <laughs> hey, everybody. So you can, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. It's in the Old Testament. You may have to check the table of contents for 1 Kings. Chapter 19, and while you're getting there, I'm going to talk a little bit. As you may know, we are in a series on the core values of the Upper Room Fellowship. It's a vision series where we're, we are kind of recentering on what we're all about as a church. And we're still talking about our first value, which is treasuring God's presence. Uh, last week, I talked about a, a couple of spiritual disciplines that are beneficial for when it comes to kind of the, the value of treasuring God's presence. The first one we talked about was staying aware of the presence of God. So God's always present. Our goal is to stay aware of his presence, stay awake to his presence. The, the second spiritual discipline I introduced last week was silence and solitude. And I look forward to talking more about that today. All right, so um, Henry Nouwen, who was a, just a, kind of a master disciple of Jesus from the last century, wrote this. This might seem like a strange way to start a sermon, but stick with me. Henry Nouwen said this. Our life is a short time in expectation, a time in which sadness and joy kiss each other at every moment. There is a quality of sadness that pervades all the moments of our lives. It seems like there is no such thing as clear-cut, pure joy, but that even in the most happy moments of our existence, we sense a tinge of sadness. In every satisfaction, there is an awareness of limitations. In every success, there is a fear of jealousy. Behind every smile, there is a tear. In every embrace, there is loneliness. In every friendship distance, and in all forms of light, there is a knowledge of surrounding darkness. But this intimate experience in which every bit of life is touched by a bit of death can point us beyond the limits of our existence. It can do so by making us look forward in expectation to the day when our hearts will be filled with perfect joy, a joy that no one shall take away from us. He's saying that even as followers of Jesus... And even if your life is good on this side of heaven, um, you never escape sadness all the way. It's there, kind of below the surface of your life, I think. And the human condition is bent to do everything it can to avoid feeling that sadness. Which means the vast majority of us avoid silence and solitude at all costs. Because here's what happens. Like you're going through life at 100 miles an hour, and uh, you're in school, you're working a job, you have a family, you have a spouse or fiance, whatever. You're going 100 miles an hour. And then all of a sudden, finally, you set aside some intentional time to, in the quiet to be alone with yourself and God. That's our working definition of silence and solitude. Intentional time, alone in the quiet, to be with yourself and God. And you get there, and you take a deep breath, and you're like, okay, finally I'm here. 
and you slow down and you turn off your phone and you start to get quiet, and what happens? All of a sudden, all sorts of emotions that you've been frantically trying, that have been frantically trying to catch up with you for who knows how long, start to catch up with you and start to rise to the surface of your heart. And you're kind of exposed for who you really are and where you're really at. It seems like, it seems like oh, you know, silence and solitude, that sounds so nice. I could use some silence. That sounds like so peaceful and fun. And you get there and you take a deep breath and you invite the Holy Spirit and then you start to feel a whole array of emotions that you were not expecting. And you think, where'd those come from? This doesn't feel all that good or peaceful. And you start thinking, am I doing something wrong? And the answer is no, you're actually doing it right. And that's what I want to really dive into today. Uh, most of us experience what the writer Ruth Haley Barton calls the push-pull phenomenon with God. On, on one hand, we feel pushed towards time alone with God, to be in the presence of God, right? We just have this inner drive, this hunger and thirst, this ache for God, because we are created for a relationship with God. So we feel pushed toward Him. But then on the other hand, we feel pulled away from Him, away from time alone with God, because all sorts of forces inside of us fear, insecurity, all that, and outside of us. Our phone, to staying busy with this and that, these things conspire together to hold you, you and me back from silence and solitude. We live in the opposite currents between these two forces. And I would argue the reason that so many of us give in to the pull of our phone or binge-watching Netflix or just another activity is fear. We're scared to be alone with ourselves and God. We don't want to feel any emotional pain. We don't want to feel sadness of any kind or doubt about God. Or to sit in uncertainty about the future or anger, betrayal, or hurt. And and honestly, I think that some of us are scared to be alone with God because we think that when we get there, we'll actually find out that we have very little relationship between us. Like, we really like being around God with a whole lot of people at church. It's fantastic. That's great. But just me and God alone in the quiet, that's intimidating. I'm not sure how I feel about that. What if I get there and I realize my personal relationship with Jesus is more of a cliche than a reality? So the question is, how do we work through all that junk that rises to the surface and come out on the other side in a new place of freedom. Well, that's where I think the story from the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is great. It's a great place to start because I think it does a great job of capturing this dynamic in story form. So a little bit of backstory before we read it. Elijah is a Hebrew prophet from the 9th century BC. He's living in a time when Israel's divided by civil war. You have two tribes down south called Judah, and they're still semi-faithful to God, But then you have 10 tribes up in the north that are not at all faithful. And there's this this petty, insecure king named named Ahab. And really, the big problem is that his wife is a sociopathic Canaanite Baal worshiper. Her name's Jezebel. And so, no offense to Jezebel, I'm just saying. And so all the north is just a wreck. And Elijah is a prophet in the north not the south. So not a great job for him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah's coming off this kind of high point of his career. 
Um, Elijah calls for a three-year drought, and there's not a drop of rain for three years. And at the end of the three years, he calls all of Israel and King Ahab and 450 prophets of King Ahab or, or Baal all up on the top of Mount Carmel, which is Baal's mountain. So that was the high place for Baal. So he's essentially like, I want to pick a fight with Baal on his home turf. So he's on Mount Carmel. There's this dramatic story. You may know it. Elijah tells the prophets, let's build an altar. You call fire from heaven. And if it happens for you, your God's the real true God. Then I'll call fire from heaven. If it happens for me, my God's the one true God. And the 450 prophets of Baal go crazy. They dance around. They cut themselves. They shout. Nothing happens. Then Elijah says, dig a trench around the altar. Pour water on it. This is after a three-year drought, right? Water is a precious commodity. He does it again. He does it again. He prays one short prayer. Fire falls from heaven. The rest is history. And then he calls for rain and it starts to rain. So it's just this miracle story. He's coming off this high point of his career. Then we read, we read 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah became afraid. That can be translated scared to death. And immediately ran for his life when he came to Beersheba uh, that belongs to Judah, so that's down in the south. He left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. So one minute he's on a high, the next minute he's scared to death and running for his life. Has this ever happened to you? Like one minute you're doing great, your life's good, you feel like you're just really, you're killing it. And all it takes is one text one email from your boss, one comment from your spouse, one piece of bad news, all it takes is one thing to trigger some kind of like emotional meltdown. I don't know if it's just me and Elijah or if there's other people in this room, but Elijah is smart enough to realize, okay, what I really need right now is to, is to say goodbye to my servant, to go into the wilderness. I need to sit down under the broom tree. I need the presence of God. I need intentional time alone in the quiet with myself and God. And then the first thing he does is pray, but his prayer is one line long, and it's very honest. God, take my life. I don't want to live anymore. I'm done. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he falls asleep. Now look at the second half of verse 5. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head, with some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. At the beginning of his experience in the silence and solitude, there's very little prayer or Bible reading. He's just sleeping and eating and drinking water, day after day after day. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, 
the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So he goes on a 40-day journey to, um, to this mountain, Horeb. Uh, why is it called the mountain of God? Well, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. And if you know the Bible, you know that Mount Sinai was this place of encounter with God. It was the place where Moses encountered God and uh, the burning bush at the foot of the mountain where Moses encountered God at the top of the mountain in the cloud and the thunder and the fire and the lightning and the smoke and all that. It was the place of the Ten Commandments, the place of the name of God, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It was a place of revelation. And Elijah, he goes there. He takes this long journey because he's desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He is hungry and he is thirsty to encounter God. He wants to be in the presence of God, to hear God speak over his life. Watch what happens. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Instead of an answer, he gets what? Question. I love it. I'm just like God, right? What's the question? What are you doing here, Elijah? Put another way. What's going on with you? If you're brutally honest, like, what's going on inside your soul, Elijah? What are you doing here? He replied, replied, look at, at verse 10. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So he's just venting before God. It all comes out. Like everything's there on the table. Doubt, frustration. Are you kidding me? My whole life, my whole ministry, my whole mission, whatever you want to call it, down the tubes. It's not good for anything. Despair. He's just at a low point in his life. The Lord said, verse 11, The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Take all your emotions, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, all the brutal honesty, and just stand in my presence. Just stand there. Let it wash over you. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind after, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question again, right? Is God like, all right, let's try again, Elijah. Here we go. He replied, Exact same answer. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Same answer, but I can't help but wonder if it's a very different tone this time around. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also a knight, Jehu, son, I'm sorry, that's not right. Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Meaning, 
I'm going to deal with all the stuff. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, there's so much here. But today I just want to point out some things that I see in the story. There is an order or a pattern to how things go in the story that I think can be very helpful for us when it comes to treasuring God's presence. Even when we feel overwhelmed or feel like we're, we're emotionally unable to treasure God's presence. First off, you see, first thing Elijah does is he rests. As first, rest. Elijah gets to this broom bush in verse 4, and the first thing he does, as I said, is pray, but it's a bit of a disaster, right? It's essentially, I would like to die. He's so exhausted. He's at the end of his rope. He's so depressed that he can't even stay awake. Like Elijah, I mean, you look back, the dude knows how to pray really well. But all he has here is the capacity for is like one crazy fatalistic prayer, and then he falls asleep. So then the angel comes, and notice what the angel says to Elijah. Get up and what? Eat. Then he comes back later. Elijah, get up and eat and drink. You need rest. And that's all he does for a few days, if not longer. Who knows how long? Sleep, eat, hydrate, sleep, eat, hydrate. Repeat. Has this ever happened to you? You set aside time for silence and solitude, and you get there. You try to pray. You try to read your Bible. You try to hear from God, but you're either so exhausted that you fall asleep or you're such an emotional train wreck that you, you just fall apart and you don't really hear much of anything from God. I think that a lot of us live with a low-grade fatigue that rarely, if ever, goes away. Life in the modern world can be exhausting. Life is tiring. If you're in school, if you have a job, if you're in a career, it's, it's tiring. If you're a mom or dad to young ones, Holy cow, that's beyond tiring. It's great, but tiring. Life is, it it just starts to wear you down sometimes. And so many of us are, I think, too tired to really pray. And even if God were to speak over our life, we're just too tired to receive much of it. Keep in mind, to be human is to be an integrated, holistic being. You are One, your body, your soul, your mind, your imagination, your personality, your body, right? It's all you, meaning you can't separate your spiritual life from your emotional life from your physical life. All of it's interconnected. Peter Scarazzo, who wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says this, it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I think my life is living proof to that. I, for one, can just directly chart my desire to seek God along with my emotional and my physical health. I mean, think about how many of you, like you're, you're down with the flu in the middle of winter, you're on your bed with your bowl next to you, and you're just like, Father, pour out your Holy Spirit over my life. I mean, I do that, but I'm a pastor. Or How many of you have had like a long, hard week? You're just wrung out tired. You get to the weekend. How many of you just want to like fast all weekend? Pray through the night. Read Leviticus with a study Bible. I mean, again, I do, but I'm a pastor. So these are jokes, people. When we get overtired, we don't have enough energy to do what's truly life-giving. Prayer, reading the Bible, walking the park. 
nice long conversation over coffee with a good friend. We don't do that stuff. What do we do? We partake in escapist behavior. Binge-watching TV, overeating, overdrinking, online shopping, thinking around on the internet or social media, late-night porn, all things that actually make us more tired and more depressed. We become very easy prey for the tempter. I believe that one of the greatest dangers to discipleship and to treasuring the presence of God is the exhaustion that just comes from an over-busy life. So at times, just like here in the story, the best thing you can do for your prayer life is go to bed early. Just not set your alarm the next day. Take a day off. Just take time to rest and let your soul and your body catch up. So the first stage is resting. After that is waiting. Uh, Elijah there in verse 8 goes on a 40-day journey. 40 days, day after day, week after week, out in the desert, all alone, nothing else. And notice, does God speak over his life in this time? Nope, not a word. On that journey, there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no prophetic word from God, there's no encounter, nothing. There's just walking and waiting. And notice, he's not waiting in the sense of like sitting around on the couch. Come on, God, speak over my life. He's in motion. There's an inertia towards God, day after day, step after step. The reality is that seeking God just takes time. So we wait. Then third is feeling. When God finally does speak, it's a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And that question is the key to unlock a torrent of all sorts of emotions that have been bottled up inside Elijah. Doubt, frustration, disillusionment, depression, anger, fear, insecurity, it's all bottled up in there. So after resting and then waiting on God for 40 days, he's not suicidal anymore, but the guy's still pretty messed up. He's not in a real healthy spot at all. But he's willing to be honest with himself and be honest with God. And not only that, but then fourth is naming. Resting, waiting, feeling, naming. Not only does Elijah have the courage to feel all sorts of emotional pain, but then he has the courage then to, to name all that is going on in his heart. The good, the bad, the ugly. Look again at verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Like, I'm still here and faithful to you, God, and passionate for you. That's good. That's the good. The bad, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. Basically, my entire life's work is a disaster. Nobody's listening to me at all. And then the ugly, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. First off, that's a lie. That's not true. And that's a bit egotistical, my friend. You're not the only one left. 7,000 people still out there. But I think there's a deeper meaning here for Elijah. The implication is, God, I want out. I'm done. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. Can you blame him? He's going, I don't, I don't want this life. I did not sign up for failure after failure after failure. Like, I want your best life now. That's a 90s reference. Come on. Don't worry about it. He says, I'm out. I quit. I don't want it anymore. Henry Nouwen writes this. Solitude is not a private, therapeutic place. Rather, it's a place of conversion. 
the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It's in this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. That's not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I love this part. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive. Or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self in all its vain glory. Some of you are like, I'm never going anywhere near silence and solitude. You lost me at dark abyss of my nothingness, man. But I love how brutally honest he is. Can anybody relate to this? Is it just me and Henry Nowen and Elijah? Like you have this image of silence and solitude. It sounds so peaceful where I just sit and breathe and smile. But in reality, it's a place of encounter. That means a place of change. So a lot of people just don't want to deal with it. But here's the thing. All that stuff is under the surface of your life already, and it's not going anywhere. Pretend all you want, ignore it, distract yourself, play on your phone, but it's still there under the surface. If you don't deal with it in a healthy way, it will leak out in an unhealthy way. It will leak out in relationship after relationship. It will sabotage marriages. It will leak out in your money or your sexuality. It will leak out in cynicism or in your sense of humor. Or you think, I just have a sarcastic sense of humor. Maybe, or maybe you're a jerk because you haven't dealt with your fear and insecurity. He said to himself. It will leak out. Trust me, I know from experience, you have to deal with it. The question is, is there a safe place to deal with the crap? And the answer is yes. And more than anything, it's intentional time alone in the quiet with ourselves and with God, where you put it all on the table. The good, the bad, the ugly. And from that place, you start to experience freedom. This is why we value God's presence so much, because it leads to the last step of the the pattern, and that's transformation. You see this with Elijah. This is the defining moment for Elijah. It's in this act of brutal honesty that is the key to unlock hearing God's voice and being transformed. That's why I love the story of Elijah, because either he's not afraid to be alone with God, or he has more courage than fear. Either way, he goes there. Because for Elijah, God's not something you run from, but it's someone you run to. He treasures God's presence. God's a safe place to deal with everything on the surface and under the surface of your life. So in this this process of silence and solitude, resting, waiting, feeling, and naming, they lead to transformation. After the encounter with God on Mount Sinai, next thing he does, Elijah goes and he anoints Elisha 
and they just continue on ministering with power. There's a change in Elijah. So maybe you're coming off the best week of your life, and you're on cloud nine. Maybe you're you're just emotionally in wonder and awe and joy and delight and celebration and gratitude. Beautiful. You meet God in that. That's fantastic. Maybe you're coming off a week of hell, and you're like racked by doubt. I don't even know if I believe in God, much less Jesus. Maybe you're so low you don't want to go forward anymore. The key is, wherever you're at, you meet God in that place. Most of us run as fast as we can away from emotional pain to distraction. But the way of Jesus that we see, not not only in the life of Elijah, but in the life of Jesus, is to run to that place and meet God there. And experience in that moment of brutal honesty, the healing touch of God who made you. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher. As most of you know, probably know, a follower of Jesus. And he had this iconic line. You may or may not know it, but I love it. Quote, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think Elijah would agree with that. I think that if we have the courage to step into that place, to trust God, to treasure his presence, even in those places of pain and fear and sadness, I think on the other side is a whole new reality of freedom and joy and healing and peace that's waiting for you. Amen. Did you get comfortable just for a minute? More comfortable? Just close your eyes for a second. We're not going to do anything weird. Let's just quiet our souls for a second. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yet I think so many of us are frazzled and fatigued trying to do more. I pray that we would find the time for silence and solitude. And in that quiet time, we might learn again to see the beauty of Jesus and treasure his presence. In order to follow Jesus, you have to hear him. In order to hear him, you have to quiet down. So I think we have to learn to love the silence. I'm going to pray for us. And as I do that, could the ministry team come on forward? If um, something I talked about hit a chord with you today, that's probably the Holy Spirit talking to you. So I just ask you to come forward and get prayer. Um, This is not an easy change to make in your life. I mean, this is the air we breathe in America. We find our worth from how much we get done. We find pride in how busy we are, how many hours we worked, how little sleep we got. Don't we? So after I pray, you're free to leave if you would like. You're free to come and get prayed for. You're free to just sit for a while if you would like. Father, I thank you for these men and women, and I ask that you just stir their hearts towards you, Lord. I pray, Father, that this won't be one of those things that we just read and see and hear in your word but do nothing with. I pray today that you would sync up our hearts with you so that where we are weary, we would be refreshed by you. Where, we have been, where you have been silent, you would speak again. I pray that we'd have the kind of courage that it's going to take 
to get in the quiet and find that solitude and look in the mirror of our souls and come face to face with the trash inside of us. Help us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.